Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Ahead on Open Spaces, Wyoming Senators John Barrasso and Mike Enzi defend the Senate health care bill against criticism. Well, there are a lot of people who have been saying the sky is falling for a long time, but they didn't read the report very carefully. In June, there's a voluntary climbing closure of Devil's Tower to respect Native American ceremonies. But more climbers are ignoring the advisory. It's like here, we see them climbing up there. All we can do is watch. And we'll learn why a coal company wants to dig the first new Wyoming mine in decades and how it has nothing to do with electricity. So the light bulb goes off. Let's figure a way to do a coal to a product. We'll also take a look at the Wyoming banned teenage bottle rocket. Those stories and much more coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Wyoming's two U.S. senators have been at the center of their party's efforts to overhaul the nation's health care system. And they're still optimistic they can pass a bill when they return to Washington after the July 4th recess. Some have been critical of their work. Correspondent Matt Laszlo reports that they're convinced that they will pass a bill that will improve the current health care law. It's a mob scene on the Senate side of the Capitol, as Republicans have been negotiating their health insurance bill behind closed doors after holding no hearings on it this year. Flocked by an ever-growing gaggle of reporters, Wyoming Senator John Barrasso tries to explain why the GOP leader had to cancel a vote he wanted to hold on the bill this week. Barrasso says the tight budget rules that they have to use, called reconciliation, that allow them to pass it with only 51 votes has hampered the effort. We're committed to get this done. When you're limited with reconciliation, there are some things that we all agree on ought to be in a, a bill that you can't get in with no, under the rules of reconciliation. So there are a lot of things I would recommend to strengthen this that aren't reconcilable. This week, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer asked President Trump to invite the entire Senate over and start negotiations on the bill from scratch. But Barrasso says that's a political stunt and Democrats have opposed major changes from the start, which he says has also hampered the process. When the Democrats really do just say, hey, more money for Obamacare, and even if Hillary Clinton had won this presidential election, you would still have this collapsing of the marketplace. You'd still have a lot of places where there was either zero, one, or two choices next year, and rates continuing to skyrocket. So we'd have to be revisiting Obamacare now, no matter who had won the presidential election. Reverberations were felt in the Capitol and across the nation when the Congressional Budget Office dropped its projection that the GOP health bill would leave some 22 million Americans without health insurance. But Barrasso says the bill simply allows Americans to decide whether they want to go without insurance. And they said that of the 15 million or 14 million immediately to, to, to drop off, those are people that are doing that as voluntarily, they said, because it's a free country even to the point that they said of Medicaid, four million people would choose not to sign up again if you remove the mandate. Democrats say that's deplorable, in part because if people don't have health insurance, they still get catastrophic health care in hospital emergency rooms, which then forces everyone else to pay for it. Wyoming Democratic Chairman Joe Barbudo says the bill is terrible for the state. I mean, this is a, this is a bad piece of legislation. It it takes health care coverage away from something like 49,000 Wyomingites, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Um, out-of-pocket costs would go up if this passed for middle-class uh, Americans. Uh, we'd be seeing people pay a lot more for a lot less coverage. So, yeah, I'd say that, that I'm pretty darn disappointed in our senators. Barbudo also says the process has been as bad as the legislation. Well, I think it was, I think it was ridiculous to draft the bill in secret. And I mean, I understand now looking at what they what they came up with, why they would want to draft that particular piece of legislation in secret, because I don't think it would have gotten as far as it did if outside groups and experts in the field had input on it. Um, but it's unprecedented. It's uh, it's uh, it's not allowable. I, it, it just it's not the way we do things in Wyoming. That's for sure. Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi disagrees with critics like Barbudo. Well, I wish they'd read the bill. Uh, Heartless kind of comes under what we're trying to stop the imploding on right now. Enzi is one of the few senators who openly supports the legislation in its current form. 
in part because he thinks after they pass the initial sweeping reforms, then Democrats will be forced to come to the table and accept compromises on some parts where the two parties agree changes are needed. Well, there are a lot of people who have been saying the sky is falling for a long time, but they didn't read the report very carefully. Uh, one of the prime things we wanted to do was reduce premiums. And it says that by 2020, the premiums will reduce by 30% under this bill. Uh, we cover people that weren't covered before. And he also disagrees with the CBO's numbers, which he says are based on old data. And uh, they're anticipating that 4 million people that get their health care for free are going to quit. Um, that's, that's a little, little hard to imagine. Enzi says their bill also opens up more access to health savings accounts, which he thinks will bring more people onto the insurance rolls than the CBO predicts. Which is a, a different way that people can buy insurance where they get the catastrophic coverage and then are able to put the money that they save into a savings account that can, can grow uh, until they need it. And that's an option that a lot of young people will have, and a lot of young people haven't been participating. Um, so that'll help to balance the markets a little bit. That also brings down costs. Most lawmakers have now left Washington for their week-long 4th of July recess, and party leaders say they want to vote on the measure before they take the month of August off from legislating. While many Republicans, from moderates to the conservative wing of the party, remain skeptical over the bill, Wyoming senators are all in. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. The U.S. is getting less and less electricity from coal, but in Wyoming, a new mine could actually be opening up. The company behind it has a plan to use the coal not for electricity, but to turn it into products. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim reports on the proposed Brookmine project. On a clear, sunny day, Jeff Barron drives over a copper-colored hill in the Powder River Basin near Sheridan. And our permit basically from right about so here we're now officially on the brook mine Baron parks hops out of his car and walks into the edge of a large open field cows are grazing in the distance he says the new operation would start right here it will mine out coal some 2,000 feet that way and 2,000 feet that way for every other coal mine in the Powder River Basin, the mine is where the business starts and ends, selling coal for electricity. Not for the proposed Brook Mine, though. It's a changing of the guard as far as what happens in Wyoming and its coal. Randy Atkins is sorting through a box of old coal company signs in his Sheridan office. He's the CEO and chairman of Ramico. Sheridan Monarch Coal, Carney Coal, Companies here have mined coal for decades, but recently the demand has gone down. Between 2014 and 2016, production dropped 24% in this region. Coal is losing to cheap natural gas and the growing market for renewable energy. Atkins bought the proposed Brookmine land back in 2011 with a plan to sell that coal for electricity. But the market has since been in decline. A few years ago, several companies went into bankruptcy. So he thought maybe there was a way to mine coal and sell it for something other than electricity. So the light bulb goes off, let's figure a way to do a cold or a product. Much like oil can be made into things like shoes, plastic, and makeup, Atkins hopes he can find a way to do the same with coal. Chemicals, different types of carbon fibers, graphenes, various electronic things, insulations. When oil became the raw material, something called feedstock, for new products in the early 1900s, its value went up. Atkins is hoping new uses for coal will have the same effect. The problem is that the technology needed to make coal into a feedstock is expensive. Plus, there's little demand for this exact kind of carbon product yet. That's what Atkins wants to change. Along with the mine, the company also wants to build a research center and manufacturing facility. That kind of bundling? It's unique. The overall concept is something that hasn't been done. Atkins thinks success would mean transforming the demand for coal. He runs through his equation. So if only 14 percent of the weight of U.S. autos, and that's body and parts, were derived from carbon fiber made from coal, that would be over 100 million tons of coal translated into making that carbon fiber. It's important to note that Ramico is not the first or only group to think about coal as feedstock. The University of Utah is planning a $1.6 million research facility to learn about what products could be made with coal-based carbon fiber. 
In Wyoming, a nonprofit is building a research complex devoted to learning about developing coal-based products. That could be up and running in just two years. The Japanese car company Mitsubishi is also looking to expand its coal-based carbon fiber business. Director of University of Wyoming's School of Energy Resources Mark Northam says that Ramico is actually behind the curve. The company is still in their permitting phase, and a long way from breaking ground. He adds even if coal feedstock does take off, it could never replace the amount of coal used for power generation. Energy economist Rob Godby, also at the University of Wyoming, says Ramico's plan is far from a guaranteed success. But what we do know is that if you don't try to make those investments or take those risks, nothing will change. Periodically, a long shot wins. And when they do, a whole bunch of people wish they'd made that bet. If this long shot does pay off, Godby says more than just Ramico will see the success. Coal companies across the country would likely see a boost in demand. Plus, a new kind of carbon material that isn't oil might attract entrepreneurs to set up new businesses in coal-rich states like Wyoming. Some people are hoping that this is the beginning of a new sector development, a new, you know, a carbon valley. But it's still in the early phase. Ramico's Brookmine has yet to obtain its permit to mine from Wyoming's Department of Environmental Quality. That could come as soon as August. After that, the company is looking at a three- to five-year time frame to get it up and running. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. When we come back, we'll hear from a Wyoming actress bringing a film crew to the state, and we'll learn about why animals and humans make trails. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A Wyoming woman who sent out to become an actress is coming home this summer for her 10-year high school reunion. And unlike most of her classmates, she's bringing a movie crew to start production on a feature film in which she's playing the lead. Correspondent Leslie Stratmoen has more. After spending the past decade working primarily in New York City as an actress on stage, TV, and for the Metropolitan Opera, Oakley Boycott of Lander is playing the character of Nancy in the sci-fi Western film The Rider. Director, writer, and leading actor Jesse Judy says the part was written for Boycott. Oddly enough, the part that I wrote, the woman in mind, was actually Oakley Boycott. The two had met years earlier at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York City, where Boycott enrolled after high school graduation. Judy describes the movie as a film noir time travel piece. About a man that has to ride through time to discover who he is and reclaim his past. But what he discovers is a past that he doesn't remember living. And through that, he's thrust into a war to stop time itself from being erased. He's playing the lead of Ryder, opposite Boycott's Nancy, who she's looking forward to playing the part because of the character's power and intelligence. She is an expert on time travel in the world that we have created. She knows a lot of things and knows how to work a room. Work the room to her advantage with her intelligence and presence. She knows how to work a situation. The decision to shoot the movie in Wyoming came about when Judy and his business partner Brandon Martin realized through Boycott's urging that filming a Western in Wyoming instead of New York City made more sense financially. So they brought her on as a co-producer. She comes at things from a very creative mindset, but at the same time, a very strong business mindset too. And to be able to marry both of those qualities, that's the trait of a good producer. Judy says 80 to 90 percent of the movie will be shot in Wyoming, primarily in and around Fremont County, and the 12-person crew will shoot both in July and sometime this fall. The economic impact for the state will be slight through the purchase of permits and hiring of extras and crew, but he says it could be substantial in the future if their vision of establishing a film community here comes to fruition. We think bringing in a smaller team at first to kind of get the lay of the land and start the production process will also give us the opportunity to kind of cultivate that community on an intimate level. Though Boycott has performed professionally in Wyoming with a national tour of the musical Cabaret, she's particularly excited about the fact that she's coming home around her class reunion, since she's doing exactly what she set out to do. 
I kind of get goosebumps thinking about it. I said that I was going to move to New York and I'm going to do theater, I'm going to do film, and I'm going to make art, and it is going to be important and it will benefit my community. So to be able to bring art back, it fills my heart. Judy says the movie will be shot as 15 different short films to be released altogether as a feature or as an episodic series, and Netflix has shown interest. As for Boycott, she's looking forward to being home in time to join her classmates riding on the reunion float in the annual 4th of July parade. The film is set for release next summer by Genesia Studios. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Leslie Stratmone. As summer gets into full swing in Wyoming, many people will be getting outside and hitting the state's trails. In his new book, On Trails, author Robert Moore explores why humans and animals make trails in the first place and what they end up meaning to us. He joined me and said he got the idea to write a book after hiking the Appalachian Trail. Immediately I came home with the intention to write something because I knew that that I'd... uh had a lot of things I wanted to say about the Appalachian Trail. So I initially thought I would write a book about the AT. And and then, you know, as I went around and told people about my idea of writing this book about the Appalachian Trail, I quickly realized that the world didn't really need another book about the Appalachian Trail by some random white guy. You know, it was just not something that, that that there was a hunger for. I'd initially thought I would have a little subsection about trails and all the things I've noticed that I'd weave into my story of the Appalachian Trail. And eventually that file on my computer became so big that it was actually bigger than my other information about the Appalachian Trail. And I realized the whole idea kind of flipped on its head. And I realized I had this book about trails, that the Appalachian Trail is a small portion within it. You spend a lot of time, especially in the first half of this book, exploring trails made by prehistoric organisms, bugs, and animals. Are human trails fundamentally different? They're not fundamentally different, but they're slightly different in a few key ways. The One way is insect trails are really incredible and, and, and ingenious because they're made of chemicals, they're pheromones, so they evaporate very quickly. And that allows insects to create incredibly efficient structures. They can map out their entire landscape, find where all the good food is and all the ways to come home. And that map continually updates because the the pheromones are always evaporating and they're laying new trails. Our trails, because they're made with our feet, are a lot more long-lasting. And so they don't have that advantage of updating as quickly. But what we do have, of course, are enormous brains, which, which ants and other insects do not have. And so in that way, our trails become part of our culture and they're, they're woven into our culture in all sorts of fascinating ways. They take on meaning and really we use them to stitch together our world. One of the most surprising and, and fascinating things in this book for me was reading about how Native American footpaths were transformed into much of America's highway system that those old trails still exist underneath asphalt. How did you find out about that? Well, I, I can't quite remember how I found out about it. I mean, it's it's a common thing you hear when you start doing reading in, in this uh, area. You will often hear uh, an old truism, which is that the roads uh, follow Native American paths and the Native American paths followed game trails. And and that is true in many places. For example, there's a place called the Gangplank, which crosses the Rocky Mountains, which uh, railroad engineers were looking for for years because they needed a place where they could cross the Rockies without having to switch back. And this Gangplank, they discovered by f- watching where Native American people were crossing the Rockies and the Native American people were following the bison. And so that's that's true in many cases that that uh, that holds true that we are all all of us are trying to find the easiest way to get from one point to another. But uh, actually, when you look at it more closely, the the Native American trail network was something much more complex. It was part of their culture and it was woven into their lore and uh, their sense of spirituality. So. A Native American trail, for example, might detour to go to a certain cave or uh, a certain mountaintop that had spiritual significance that, of course, a deer would never follow. When you're looking at all of these 
trails, both made by animals and and by people. What do you think it says about our relationship with nature? Are we really doing that if if there's something that we're creating? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, and that's a kind of uh, a kind of epiphany I had while while writing this book. It was I think it was while herding sheep. I, I herded sheep in in on the Navajo reservation in in Arizona in order to learn how animals collaborate to create trails, and I started to have this feeling of well, we're we're transforming the landscape while we're we're walking. And I mean, herding sheep is not the most natural thing in the world if you're hung up on the definition of what is natural. But of course, the more you look at the definition of what is natural, the more it dissolves. And so I started to realize that if you look at things through a trail lens, you see that in fact, all of us in walking across this earth and living on this earth are transforming it. And in fact, what the planet is, is the cumulative result of all of those transformations. And so it's not, uh, it, it takes some, some of the guilt out of making a trail of, of leaving uh, a trace. You know, we live in this era now, which I fully support of, of leave no trace ethics. And yet part of leave no trace is uh, walking on uh, durable surfaces, right? It means creating trails. Sometimes you need a trail in order to minimize your impact elsewhere. So the question becomes, not if we transform the woods while passing through them, but how are we going to transform them wisely and in a sort of minimal way, or are we going to transform them recklessly and radically? You have obviously followed many, many trails in your time. Do you think that there is a perfect trail? Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't, I, I don't think there can be a perfect trail. I mean, they're kind of imperfect things, or, or maybe they're they're always perfecting, you know, they, 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 they never become perfect because they're never finished. And that's one of the things I love about them. Robert Moore is the author of On Trails. It's out in paperback on July 4th. Thanks so much, Robert. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, a story on the voluntary climbing closure at Devil's Tower and why some people are choosing to ignore it. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Throughout the month of June, the National Park Service asks visitors to refrain from climbing Devil's Tower to respect American Indian ceremonies. However, the closure is voluntary, and the number of climbers in June has been steadily rising in recent years. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen has more. Today at the Belfouche River Campground near the base of Devil's Tower, All 50 sites are taken. It's early in the morning and people are just beginning to crawl out of their tents and a couple of teepees to start a fire and make breakfast. A lot of the campers are Native Americans who are here for their annual visit. One group are Lakota youth who live on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Waylon Blackrow Sr. is among the chaperones to the kids. He says they didn't drive to get here. They ran. So we start from Bear Butte and we go all around the Black Hills and end at, end at Bear Butte. The tradition began 35 years ago, and it's called the Sacred Hoop 500-mile run. About 50 youth runners make a loop through the Black Hills, and Devil's Tower is their last stop. It's like a, a prayer because during the day they run all day. They stand on that road, they run, and all they drink is water and fruits. So it's like fasting all day, and they're running, and they're praying. They're giving themselves. And at the end, it, it brings them up. So every year they look forward to this. Black Crow says the runners especially look forward to making it to Bear Lodge, the Lakota name for Devil's Tower. He says it's a sacred site, so it's painful when climbers ignore the closure. But there's not much Black Crow and other Native Americans can do about it since it's voluntary. That's all we're, we've got is we've got the power of prayer. It's like here we see them climbing up there. All we can do is watch. Tim Reed is the superintendent of Devil's Tower National Monument. He says when the park's climbing management plan was developed in the early 90s, a working group of American Indians and climbing representatives came up with the idea as a kind of compromise. 
Reed says tribal representatives felt a mandatory closure did not reflect the spirit of intent. June was a selected month, um, and they wanted people to want to abstain from climbing out of respect for the sacred site status and the cultural significance of the tower to, you know, 25 plus tribes uh, in the mountain area. And Reed says the climbers wanted the opportunity to show that their community could self-regulate. So voluntary closure made sense, and it was put into the final draft of the climbing management plan. That first season in 1995, the closure was hugely successful in reducing the numbers. The year before, more than 1,200 people climbed Devil's Tower in June alone. That number went down to 167 the next season. But what we have ascertained in the last, uh, certainly in the last five years, is there's been a, um, a steady uh, incremental increase in the number of climbers in June that is not connected to just the steady overall increase in visitation at the monument. Last year, 373 people climbed the tower in June. That doesn't sound like a lot, but the problem is that it's been slowly trending up. Reed says when it comes to who exactly the June climbers are, the data is imperfect. But I think that it's uh, safe to say that largely the bulk of um, the June climbing is done by relatively local or regional climbers who, uh, for whatever reasons, um, find it personally acceptable to climb in June. The tower is not for one person or one group of people or one month or one day or one week. It's for all of us. That's Frank Sanders, a local commercial climbing guide who owns and operates Devil's Tower Lodge. Sanders says 18 years ago, he gave up drinking, and climbing the tower helps him to stay sober. It is conscious, constant contact with the Creator, or as in AA we say, a higher power. I don't think that the tower is my higher power. No, it's not. But it certainly helps. Sanders says he knows not everyone agrees with his decision to climb in June, but he doesn't see it as a problem. I cannot help but reflect that my time on the reservation, and I've had plenty of times on Rosebud and Pine Ridge, a lot of people there are as alcoholic as I am. Actually, studies show Native Americans abstain from alcohol use more than the general public. And I wish they would come to the tower. But the truth is, the natives, as far as I can see, that visit our token, they are few. But just down the road at the campground, there are dozens of multi-generational Native families who would disagree. Along the mile-and-a-half loop trail that circles the tower, prayer flags and offerings are visible. But the ceremonies that incorporate these objects are intentionally less visible. Part of the reason they're held in private may be tied to harassment. Wayland Blackrow Sr. says not very many vehicles that pass by the runners on their journey cheer them on. They go by and they throw trash at them, or they go by and go, or they tell us to go home. Red men go home, or redskins go home, and those are things that hurt. But the kids come back crying, and I tell them, we tell them, just send it, come in one ear and go out the other. So remember who you are, remember God made you special, Creator made you special. As far as updating the climbing management plan, National Park Service would like to see the rising June numbers addressed through education. But if necessary, they might have to move to a mandatory closure. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. Recently, Teton County asked voters to weigh in on several projects that would have been funded through the local sales tax. Out of 10 proposals, they approved six. But all three of the projects linked to the Southern Teton Area Rapid Transit System, or START, failed at the ballot box. As Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder reports, the county is wondering how the bus system can serve people better and become more popular. It just takes two hands to count the number of people riding Jackson's Town Shuttle on a Friday morning. The bus seats less than 30 people, and it's only a third full. Meanwhile, summertime traffic has set in, and we're squeezing between cars to get through the famous Jackson Town Square. Jackson's congestion during tourist season has long been an issue. 
The Jackson Hole bus system started in the 1980s to shuttle people to the ski area Teton Village, but it has become the county's main tool for keeping cars off the road. A need county commissioner Greg Epstein says is critical. The traffic situation in Teton County is out of control right now and it's not getting any better. Epstein says public transit addresses other issues important to the community, such as reducing carbon emissions and protecting wildlife from vehicles. The county has been trying to boost alternative modes of transport in the valley, which sees more visitors every year. Epstein says it's been difficult to change people's habits. People like to do the Wyoming carpool, one person per car. <laughs> people are attached to their vehicles and people want to get to where they need to go conveniently. So it really asks for a serious behavioral change and that's tricky. Start success depends on who you ask. All of the routes saw more riders than ever last winter, particularly along the way to Teton Village. Epstein says the village incentivized people to ride by charging more for parking. The bus also takes commuters to nearby towns like Victor, Idaho, where many Jackson workers find cheaper housing. And the town shuttle provides rides around Jackson or to Wilson free of charge. This rider loves Start. Herman Rodriguez. And so where are you going this morning? Home. Were you just working a night shift or something? Yes. Okay. So you're going to go sleep, hopefully? Yes. <laughs> But not everybody is that enthused about it. Bob Culver is a local Tea Party member who campaigned against the START ballot issues that failed this spring. He says START is not working. The type of mass transit system that they want to build here probably is not a good fit. I don't know what percentage of people think they can even use mass transit to get from, say, home to work or shopping and back, but I'm thinking it's pretty small. To Culver, the mere fact that people voted down issues with START in the name proves that it's wildly unpopular. All three of those were defeated, and the name Stark appears to have been the kiss of death for these programs, even though they weren't really for Stark buses, but some of them were for some maintenance and housing facilities. Culver publicly criticized most of the items on the ballot as fiscally irresponsible because he says they funded big construction projects that would later need to be maintained. One of the proposals was to put a maintenance building for all of the town's vehicles by the bus barn. Another would have used nearby land to house town employees. The third would have paid for new buses, which operations manager Darren Brugman says Start needs. The bus manufacturer is no longer in business and we cannot find parts. So we are scrambling to figure out how we can replace at least eight vehicles. County Commissioner Epstein says they'll try to bring the ballot issues back, but he says they clearly need to improve Start's image. A lot of people continue to think that a Start bus runs empty. It's just the word on the street. And mainly, they're talking about this town shuttle. As noted before, Start doesn't quite run empty. But Epstein says there are some routes that may be unnecessary, and some tweaks that would make the system more convenient. A new committee will begin studying this and other issues on July 11th. They'll also work with some local employers to try to make the service more popular. On the bus, Herman Rodriguez says the bus matches his shifts okay. The one recommendation he'd make to the committee is to help visitors learn how the bus system works and where it goes. For the local, we finally we understand where they go and what bus we must be taking. But for the tourists, it's complex. In other words, despite being in business for decades, start supporters still have a lot of work to do. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder. University of Wyoming Vice President of Research and Economic Development Bill Gurn is soon stepping down. Gurn is credited with pushing to increase the amount of research dollars UW receives, as well as working with outside groups to improve economic development in the state. He sat down with me to discuss those efforts. You started this, uh, you actually were an interim uh, all the way back in 1994, took over the position in 1995. That was at a time of some financial disarray in the state as well. And so how have you seen the economic development efforts maybe coupled with some of the research that we've done here at the university? How, how has that all changed and how has that all worked together? Well, that's a great question, Bob. And let me let me just, uh, and it could get to be a very long answer. So uh, 
the first thing I did when I came into the office in 94 as the interim was hire the new director of the Wyoming Small Business Development Centers. In 93, they were defunded by the state legislature and then reassembled under the university's guidance in 1994. So from that starting point of, of small business development centers, we added a number of other programs, which will eventually be swept into the Wyoming Business Council when it was formed in 1998. But Manufacturing Works, our Manufacturing Extension Partnership, the SBIR, STTR, which are two federal innovation funding programs, our, our Technology Transfer Research Product Center, and others were created as a bundle of, of, of programs offered now in conjunction with the Business Council to support Wyoming small businesses. And uh, from my perspective, they've really done a terrific job. Let me just give you one example. An external audit, this is all done by external audit, so it isn't us patting ourselves on the back. It's done by a, a, a very explicit external audit, has determined that over the, the period of time that the university has managed these programs, about $725 million of external funding has come in to uh, these uh, Wyoming small businesses. That's a very big number. It allows them to grow. It allows them to employ people. And of course, that was our goal. Our goal was more businesses, businesses that will employ more people. So the total employment over that time is now about 20,000 of jobs that were either created or retained. And so I 20,000 is one of those numbers that people, well, mm -hmm. what's 20,000? Well, that's about Evanston, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. The other thing that on the economic development side that's worth mentioning is you worked very hard with, uh, with other people, certainly, to get the business incubator started here at UW. Boy, that's worked out. It really has. So, you know, as we started to build the, the research enterprise, one of the things we recognized we had to do was to spin out more of our technology into the economy. And it became very apparent quickly that, that while we had done a little of it, we had not done enough of it. And we still are, from my perspective, never doing enough of it. But the fact is that the business incubator, both you know, initiating in Laramie, but also now in Casper and in Sheridan, has really done a great job in identifying new, really early-phase businesses, working with them as, so that they can uh, grow, become independent uh, entities, and again, employ people in the state of Wyoming. We're talking with Bill Gurn. He is the University of Wyoming's Vice President for Research and Economic Development. I know the research side of things uh, we don't want to overlook as well. And I, I know, talking with you enough, that one of the proudest things, you're very proud of the amount of money that the researchers have brought into this state and this institution. Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Bob. What I'm really proud of is the University of Wyoming faculty and their researchers. None of our success can happen without them being successful. And it starts with identifying great new faculty to come into the various departments of the university. It requires hiring great graduate students, hiring terrific uh, technical support to them. Um, and then it is their job to go out and find funding. And they do a wonderful job with it. And our, so we've always said that the research office is a service entity to the faculty. That's what we do. We support the faculty. There are some programs that we're, we have more responsibility for. For example, Wyoming EPSCOR. Uh, that is a direct report to the research office, and we work hard with the director of EPSCOR's, the various EPSCOR programs. But this, this success, so we, we went from when I started at about 25 to 30 million. This year, we're going to be well over 95, uh, probably closer to 97 or 98 million. And that is the faculty's success. And uh, I never lose sight of that. So when people ask me what I'm going to miss the most, I'm going to miss working with faculty. You've been appointed to the Advisory Council for the National Institute of General Medical Sciences. So you're, you're going to be doing some exciting things. I am. Um, so that is, a, that is the fundamental science part of the National Institutes of Health. And so we get to see the very first parts of, of, of biomedical research coming forward. And at, sitting on that advisory board, we approve awards, grants that they are making, uh, we, do, we also work with the director, uh, Mr., uh, Dr. John Lorsch, who's a wonderful, uh, wonderful director of that, uh, of, that new in, of that institute. But we work with him to bring forward some policy issues, uh, trying to figure out ways to spread the funding base so that we can get more uh, mid, early and mid-career 
uh, scientists involved in NIH work. So it kind of is a throwback to what I've, and I've been doing, and that is I was asked to be on the National Advisory Council because of my knowledge of what are called capacity building programs. Uh, and these are programs that are in states like Wyoming where they want to build the research capacity. And, I, and over the years, I've gained that knowledge. So I'm now on that council for that reason. Uh, and so it's fun. And in a way, it's, it's what I've been doing as the research vice president, but uh, on a different and somewhat larger scale. Well, Bill Gern, it's been a pleasure over the years. We're certainly going to wish you well. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. And it's been great speaking with you over the years. I've enjoyed it greatly. To wrap up the show, we'll learn how a rare discovery by UW researchers is rocking our understanding of high-altitude living, and a look at the Wyoming band Teenage Bottle Rocket. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A summer hike up to a 13,000-foot alpine meadow can be exhilarating. But what if you decided to stay up there for the rest of your life? The lack of oxygen frigid temperatures and sparse vegetation would certainly make it tough. Archaeologists know hunter-gatherers traversed highland areas thousands of years ago, but presumed they also had to spend time in lowland areas in order to survive. But now that idea is being challenged by a team of researchers at the University of Wyoming who've made a rare discovery. Wyoming Public Radio's Tennessee Watson reports. Archaeologist Randy Haas routinely travels to the Andean Plateau in Peru, and as soon as he arrives, he's immediately reminded why some of his colleagues are reluctant to believe his hypothesis that hunter-gatherers lived here at high altitudes year-round. I've seen people get off the plane in Juliaca and just fall over, and people will rush out with oxygen tanks because of the lack of oxygen. Not to mention, it's cold. If you don't have fancy down jackets and sleeping bags. Uh, it's very difficult to keep warm. In other parts of the world where it's cold, you can keep warm by fire. There are not a lot of trees up there, not a lot of fuel to burn at this high elevation. Haas says the harsh environs means there's not much of something else you need to live. Your foods, there's not much of that either. So all these things combined seem to make it to be a very challenging place to live. And that explains why this high elevation region was one of the last frontiers for human settlement. And for a lot of scholars, it was believed that it wasn't really until you had food production, that's what made permanent habitation of these landscapes possible. We know that between 3,000 and 5,000 years ago, agricultural communities emerged in the alpine valleys of the Andes. The descendants of these early farmers still successfully work the land today. If you've ever eaten quinoa, it was likely grown in this region of Peru. But not many people had really examined the hunter-gatherers who kind of paved the way. Ha saw an opportunity to help fill the gap in the historical understanding of how humans came to settle at high elevations. This one particular site, Soto Makayapata, we knew about from surface remains, scatters of flake stone tools on the surface. That was a pretty good indicator that evidence of hunter-gatherers might be buried underground at Soro, too. But first, he had to meet with the local community to get their blessing to dig right in the middle of their barley field. What I'd hoped to find at the time were just some, maybe some house features, hearths. But what I didn't expect to find and what we ended up coming across was a burial assemblage, 16 human individuals. He knew he'd hit the jackpot, but he was nervous. Nervous how the local community would respond to the disturbance of their ancient ancestors' remains. He says they too were intrigued by the discovery and encouraged him to proceed. If you want to understand people of the past, one of the best things that you can find are the, the people themselves. And you can see each one of these bags have different labels on them. He's handling fragments of 7,000-year-old bones that now sit on his desk in baggies at the University of Wyoming, where he's wrapping up a year-long fellowship. When he first arrived, he shared his find with his colleague at the university, Melissa Murphy, an anthropologist who also studies human evolution in the highlands of Peru, and she immediately knew Haas was going to make an important contribution to the understanding of the occupation of the highlands. Hunter-gatherers and foragers, they don't bury their dead in cemeteries. There's not going to be large sample sizes. Murphy studies the Incan Empire, which she admits makes her work a little easier. It's much sexier if you're going to uh, excavate a pyramid or fancy burials. But hunter-gatherers were mobile, so they weren't building large structures and accumulating stuff, which means they left behind less clues. 
So to find a body, let alone 16, is a big deal. Because there are important transitions that we move from being a hunter-gatherer forager to being a settled pastoralist or a settled agriculturalist. And what happens? How does that, how does that come about? And when do humans occupy these higher elevations? Haas's discovery offered a solid answer to Murphy's questions for several reasons. If this was a temporary camp uh, monitored from a low elevation base camp, then you know the old and infirm wouldn't have been coming along. Young children probably would have been left behind. And it turns out that our burial assemblage has two children who are somewhere between ages four to six years old. We have at least one man who's over 50. We have men and women. And so this was another line of evidence that seemed to suggest that there was a whole population living up here long term. And the chemical makeup of the bones has a story to tell too. Haas got some help from graduate students who tested the isotopes in the bones. Signature ratios of carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen revealed the altitude where the water and food these folks consumed was sourced. It was really amazing to see that they fell into the high altitude uh, precipitation values for oxygen. And I was like, these people live there. Ioana Stefanescu, one of the graduate students, was the first person to see the results. I remember I put my, my laptop in my purse and I was like running. I couldn't wait to tell them. This groundbreaking discovery earned Haas and his team a place in the July issue of Royal Society Open Science, a journal that requires an arduous review of an article before it's published. It's a sign that scholars are coming around to Haas's hypothesis that hunter-gatherers did indeed occupy the highlands full-time, even before the advent of agriculture. Haas's next big question is, how did they do it? He says there's already an important clue. The bodies he found all exhibited evidence of cranial modification or head shaping. Haas says this physical expression of connection is telling us something more about the importance of community in not only surviving, but thriving in adverse conditions. He'll join the archaeology department at the University of California, Davis, this fall, where he plans to pursue this research. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. For almost 20 years, the Wyoming-based punk rock band Teenage Bottle Rocket has grown in popularity. Formed by Laramie natives Ray and Brandon Carlyle, and later joined by Cody Templeman and Miguel Chen, the band gained an international following. In fact, a group of Japanese musicians have recorded a tribute album to honor the band, and one of their songs even appeared on an NBA broadcast this season. The band is set to release a new album and a couple of extra songs this month. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck spoke with lead singers Ray Carlisle and Cody Templeman to discuss the album and the band's legacy. The song Skeet or Die by Teenage Bottle Rocket is one of their bigger hits. One of the many examples of how their music helps tie them into their punk rock fan base. Ray Carlisle says he and his friends idolized punk bands growing up in Laramie and decided to form their own. Carlisle says in the 1990s there was a Laramie band that had had success and it convinced him that he could do the same kind of thing. Back in 93 there was a label called One Legged Pup Records. The drummer to this band on One Legged Pup and one of the owners is named Justin Cooper. He owns a skateboard shop here in town. And his band, File 13, opened for Green Day in 1993 in Fort Collins. So we're like, oh, wait, there's this local band that opened up for Green Day. This is all attainable. Let's go out and do this. Carlisle does human resources work for Laramie Business as a day job, but he looks the part of a punk rocker. He and his fellow bandmates have certainly kept tattoo shops in business. Many of the band's lyrics are funny and fun. band is tight and takes its music seriously. And after a number of tours, it became very popular. Carlisle remembers when they turned a corner. One of them was selling out the bottom of the hill in San Francisco because we had previously played San Francisco and 10 people went. And we always considered the Bay Area just the toughest scene to rock. We also opened up for this band, the J Church and the Methadones and the Groovy Ghoulies in Chicago. And our t-shirt sales 
you know, we were like, we did what in t-shirt? It was a lot of money to us at the time. And that was a kind of a monumental moment. Like, wait, people care. Cody Templeman sings lead on roughly half of the band's songs, and like Carlisle, is very well thought of in the punk community. Templeman enjoys the fact that Teenage Bottle Rocket is the standard for up-and-coming punk bands. I don't know. That, that feels, it feels awesome. Like, you know, I mean, we, I think we all kind of put ourselves in their shoes, and I mean, that's how we started, was listening to bands, and it's cool to know that, like, what we've done, like, has done the same thing for other people. The band did recently suffer tragedy when Ray's twin brother Brandon, the band's drummer, died suddenly in 2015 due to heart failure. He was in his late 30s. Some wondered if the band would continue, but after giving it some thought, Carlisle asked a drummer he admired, Darren Chuka, to join the group. My whole thing was, I lost my brother, I don't want to lose my band. It's important to us, it's important to a lot of different people, and it's fun, so let's just continue to shred. They are releasing a new album soon. Templeman says they're doing an album of unusual covers. We recorded songs by like bands that we'd played with and like were our friends' bands and like bands we'd listen to in the van and stuff and just a lot of bands that haven't really been heard of and that we just always liked and we wanted to like kind of give them some exposure and it was really fun. plans to record and tour well into the future. In the meantime, Carlisle is also trying out an acoustic career. You feel naked when just you and your acoustic guitar compared to a loud band. And, you know, the difference is my mom, I don't think, would necessarily have a good time at a Teenage Bottle Rocket show, but she would love my solo thing. (laughs) (laughs) So you had to do it for your mom. Yeah, right. Teenage Bottle Rocket's new album is out July 14th, with an extended play that includes two newly released Bottle Rocket composed songs. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. The Wyoming Public Radio News Team also got some good news recently. We won three national awards at Prindy. That's the Public Radio News Director Association Awards. The news team brought home two first-place honors and one second place. Thanks for your support of our journalism. You can sign up for the Open Spaces podcast on our website, or you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. If you do get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.